Welcome to the Advance Born Global podcast. I'm Johanna Pittman, CEO of Advance, the non-profit organisation that shines a spotlight on the impact of outstanding global Australians. In this podcast series, we meet all 34 game changers recognised in the 2022 Global Australian Awards. These inspiring game changers generously share the story of their international career journey with us, the highlights and challenges, and what motivates them in their work. I hope you enjoy getting to know these inspiring game changers. In this episode, you will meet Dr. Seiji Armstrong, who was awarded the Technology and Entrepreneurship Award in the 2022 Global Australian Awards. I loved hearing about Seiji's journey to cherish his own strengths in communication and building great teams, in addition to his technical expertise. The work he is doing at Google is relevant to everyone and provides a window into the threats to online safety. This is a fascinating conversation not to be missed. Joining me for this interview is Nicola Hazel, an expert on inclusive leadership and friend of advance who helped capture the stories of the 2022 Game Changers. Just thinking about how you might describe what you do on a day-to-day basis and, and what your career is, uh, what your role is, how would you describe that to, let's say, a high school audience? Yeah, the first thing I'd say is that uh, I keep the internet safe. And in more concrete terms, uh, what does that mean? I run a team at Google and we provide technology to product teams uh, to effectively detect and mitigate abuse. Now, the technology that we provide is based on machine learning, which is a branch of artificial intelligence. And when we talk about abuse, uh, there are many forms of abuse that can happen on the internet And we're really talking about anything that violates policy, policy that's written by uh, product teams in partnership with legal, uh, with external kind of regulatory, uh, um, let's say, pressures. Um, I can give you some examples of of what the abuse might look like. So these are things like toxic comments on on YouTube videos. Um, These are things like... Uh, let's see, spam or phishing emails that might be sent or received by Gmail, uh, as well as misinformation that can spread on the internet and and obviously do a lot of damage. Well, certainly um, that puts you in the the hot seat of a lot of discussions around tech. What are the challenges of of that role for you and and, uh, what, what do you find, what, what is, how do you address those challenges? Right, I'd say the challenges are really navigating the constraints uh, and the changing landscape that we have, uh, as well as working with large groups of people with very uh, diverse backgrounds um, and, and, and diverse opinions, uh, myself included. So the tech is, is actually the easy part, and, and we like to kind of geek out and... and um, you have a lot of fun with the exciting technology we get to play with. Um, but partnering with people all over the world in, in different time zones uh, and they have local incentives, you know, getting these large groups of people to really focus on one vision and work in a coordinated way. Um, that's, that's really the challenging part. And then throw into the mix, you have regulations from 
places all over the world. Again, it's a very global problem. And while these policies can be well-intentioned, they can make it quite difficult for us to do our jobs. Uh, so to give you one example, we rely on having access to large amounts of data uh, that is aggregated, of course, we're never looking at individual um, attributes or elements or anything like that. But we need to understand what good behavior and bad behavior looks like on the internet, again, defined by whether this behavior is po uh, violating policy or not. And if there are restrictions in place so that we can't have access to or mix different data sets, then we can't write these machine learning algorithms. And so the protections have uh, the potential to be less effective. And we can't roll out any products or product features if they don't meet our very high bar of safety. So th there's some of the challenges. Um, there, are, there are more, but <laughs> there's some of the big ones. You've, uh, you've really, as, as we mentioned, the, the focus on this has been a, um, a big point of contention over the last two years, particularly you joined the Google team in 2019 and through the pandemic, um, I understand you're based in Sydney at the moment. How, right. how are you juggling the, um, the, the process of working remotely and managing these teams remotely through, this, through all of these um, conversations? This actually works pretty well for me professionally. Uh, personally, that's a different story. <laughs> I can tell you what I mean. So I start my day quite early. I start at 4 a.m., uh, which is, I think, 11 a.m. in California right now with daylight savings differences. But then I have all my meetings uh, finished by 10 a.m. local time. And so I have the rest of the day to do anything I want. I happen to live near Bondi Beach, where I'm a lifesaver. So I, I go down and I surf if it's not raining. Um, I have a life outside of work. Um, <laughs> But what this means is I go to bed very early. So I have to go to bed at eight or 9 p.m., which makes it difficult to have a social life because my friends like to go out after dinner. But I also, so I'm a manager, I manage quite a large team and you can quickly fall into a trap of endless meetings if you're a manager at a large tech company. So my, my schedule actually works quite well that I finish early and if I have to do some core work one or two hours later on in the day, that's uninterrupted. Emails don't come in. I don't have meetings. So, so that part works really well. It looks like your career was sort of, um, you were, um, you could see into the future doing PhDs on, on quantum computing and, um, and then focusing on data science. You just knew what was, what was going to be the, the next big thing. Did you always intend to really be on the cutting edge of, of tech and, and what was, what what did you aspire to doing when, let's say, you were in high school? Yeah, it, I, I like the story that you're telling and it would be convenient <laughs> to say, yes, I'm a visionary. Uh, but no, I got lucky. Uh, so when I was younger, I wanted to be a scientist or a physicist and, and really discover or invent something profound and change the world. Uh, my heroes were Archimedes, Richard Feynman, Isaac Newton. But, but I realized at some stage, these were people that were kind of singular geniuses. They worked by themselves on a problem that nobody had even thought of before. 
and, and, and made an earth-shattering discovery or invention. In the society and the world that I live in, um, that's, that's less, less common. And during my PhD, so I had a stint in physics. I did research in quantum computing, as you mentioned, and I found that I was very effective at working with teams and, and getting large groups of people that I think I mentioned before to work together. And I became very interested in, in this concept of, of leadership uh, on a global scale. But also I started thinking about how the technology that I was working on will change the world and will impact society, which, which kind of led to what I'm doing now where we're at an amazing point in history where technology has progressed so far that it's having a huge impact on society and, and the way we interact with social media and the internet and everything like that. Um, I'm not convinced that the, the kind of tech and society intersection is quite optimal at this stage. And, and so that's kind of what led me down that path. Right. Well, um, as, as, uh, Kathy and Ebony would have mentioned this is um, the Global Australian Awards are really about identifying um, individuals that are trying to that are both achieving in their field of in their field but also um, going beyond that and trying to um, in part change on a much bigger scale um, and I guess we wanted to sh let you know that the uh, technology and entrepreneurship uh, category always very um, hotly contested, lots of, lots of nominees for that. But the uh, judging panel after a, a bunch of deliberation decided that you would win this category. Oh, amazing. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's amazing news. One of the things that really demonstrates the sort of the nature of being a global Australian, as you say, about working across teams, but also embarking on your PhD in, in Tokyo and, and really trying to, um, you know, learn in different cultures is a really big part of that journey. Um, what does it mean to you to be recognised in Australia for what, for what you've been able to achieve? It, it means quite a lot. I was discussing this with my wife, uh, so I, I tend to be recognized for being an Asian Australian or, or an Australian Asian. And uh, any, any awards that I've won in the past, um, such as the, I think there was a Prime Minister's Asia Australia Award and a 40 under 40 for Asian Australian. Uh, I, I kind of fell into this, this category or, or um, being labeled as somebody who is half Japanese, half Australian and anything I I did was through that lens, which is amazing for some parts of who I am. And, and I, I really want to embrace that and advocate for Asian Australians to be more global and recognized in Australia. Uh, but it's, it's very personal for me and, and some part of me, because I, I grew up being bullied for being different and, and Australia, at least in the eighties was a unforgiving place if you were different. And so I've always had a chip on my shoulder and I always thought, can I just win an award being an Australian? Do they have to label me? Uh, and I, I mean, no disrespect to all the wonderful awards that, that I've been very lucky to win. Uh, this is not throwing shade at those particular awards, but the, the concept of putting people in a box. So to, 
to be able to be recognized as a global Australian, it, it is very personal for me. I'm, I'm very um, appreciative of, of this. Thank you. Yeah, well, um, yeah, that's, it's a topic Nicola and I talk about a lot. Um, and it's, um, yeah, yeah, it's frankly overdue to, to see, um, yeah, the, the recognition of what, what you're doing for, for what it is. Um, I, that is all my questions. Nicola, I know you're busting to ask some, so I'll hand it over to Nicola. Thanks, Johanna and Seiji. It's so great to meet you. It's been a real treat for me um, working with Johanna and the team to help really craft the narrative that ensures that the amazing and inspirational stories of Australians like you and the work that you're doing internationally can resonate and, and be elevated in this country for the very reasons you have just uh, described. It, I have to say on a personal note, it was a real delight digging into your story and researching the work that you've been doing. I've certainly learned a lot in this process about your work and the work of other finalists. So it's great to have a chat with you today and thanks for making this time. Thank you. Um, the, the questions I'm super curious about is, you know, you, in some of my research, I came across stories not just about your work in technology and in quantum physics, and obviously there's a lot about that particular period, but also a few pieces about your life as a dad and parenting. And I've got a three-and-a-half-year-old, so I loved some of the articles that you were in as well. I was talking about them with my husband. Right. But... You know, what I was left with when I was thinking about your story and, and really all the way to where you are today, which is still like at the top of your career and yet at the early stages of your career, is when you look forward, what is the world that you would hope for for your daughters? You know, they're digital natives. They're growing up in this environment that, as you say, is constantly evolving. And the work that you're doing is to try and shape what that looks like moving forward. So what would be your aspirations, your hopes for the next generation and, and particularly on that personal level for your own kids? That's an amazing question. Thank you, Nicola. I hope I can do this justice. I guess there are a couple of different angles that I think about. One is, so I, I am a father uh, of, of two gorgeous little girls, uh, four and seven, and they have Japanese heritage, but they don't identify as being Japanese. Um, but they want to be. We, we'll, we'll go to a Japanese restaurant and they'll, they'll eat something and say, Daddy, am I Asian? Uh, things like this. They, they grew up in California, um, where we lived for five years, and spoke Spanish when they were younger. Unfortunately, they're losing it now, uh, living in Australia, but they, they really are global citizens. Uh, but they are very much growing up in this landscape of, I think you phrased it well, this kind of the digital age. And I worry about some of the things I see on the internet and how people interact with social media. Um, and I don't think we've quite got it right yet how people can have personas on the internet that are, that are separate from how they live in the real world. And so this is what motivates me every day. How can we get this right? How can we have technology that enables people to be safe on the internet. Um, I, see, I see a lot of bad things that happen every single day all over the world, and that terrifies me. So some of the motivation for doing what I do um, is for my children and, and for the next generation of people. 
Seiji, when you talk about, um, you know, the different personas in a digital world versus the real world, and at the same time you talk about your own daughters grappling with identity, the word identity is what comes to mind, mm. including the, the story you shared with us really humbly earlier, and it was um, really powerful to hear how you yourself think about and grapple with identity. How big um, a theme is identity for you when you're looking at this work in terms of how we shape a safe and inclusive and you know thriving digital world that is connected to the the tangible real world around us yeah it's a very large theme it's it's quite a complex area and i don't think i'll be able to really um kind of articulate my thoughts well but when i talk about the internet even that is misleading there are actually multiple internets all over the world and and you know china will have its own internet uh, many different cultures and countries and kind of sub-regions will have their own internet. And yet we interact on, on social media platforms and through products that tech companies put out. And are the identities that people have consistent across those platforms? Um, and today they're not. So there's a lot to unpack there. And I'm, I'm not, um, I, won't, I won't be able to do it justice if I kind of get into the weeds, but... It's a, it's a huge problem right now that we need to solve. So how much of your own personal lived experience do you bring to your work in this space then? That's a good question. Um, quite a lot. I think I've always, I touched on this earlier, but I've always had this sense of being an outsider. Um, growing up in Australia as a half Japanese kid, I grew up in Canberra, went to a very small <laughs> primary school that had 100 people in it. And back then... I don't think people understood what, what Japan was as a concept. And so I was the Chinese kid because I was Asian and not Australian. Uh, and so I've had this chip on my shoulder. And, and then we moved to Tokyo when I was younger. Uh, and again, I was different. And so, and then, and then again, later when I did my PhD in quantum computing, um, you could imagine there are some pretty smart people that do PhDs in quantum computing and I wasn't one of the kids in, in class who was always at the top of my grades, let's say. I had, I had a different skill set that could make, make me useful and I could, I could lead and be effective at pulling people together. But that also kind of instilled in me this idea of, okay, I need to find a way to, to, be, to be better than everyone uh, and to bring everyone together and to kind of make a difference uh, by leveraging what was different about me. And it took a long time to figure that out. Uh, let's wind back a little bit then to when you were, you know, you went from studying, doing your first PhD in Australia, then you went to Tokyo and did your second PhD, and then you were working in quantum computing uh, back in Australia, if I'm correct, yep. before, before you then went and took part in, in the uh, intensive program in Silicon Valley on data science. Um, from there, you went into working on sports technology and then into fintech. Um, and now you are where you are. There's a big leap. There are a lot of big leaps, I feel, between each of those steps. And I would love you, if you wouldn't mind, to indulge us to tell the story of those, the decision points or the inflection points that shifted from 
the Australian PhD over to Tokyo, back to Australia and the research you were leading, and then into Silicon Valley from sports to fintech to cybersecurity and, and safety online. C- could you join the dots for us? I'll, I'll give it a red hot go. Um, <laughs> Thanks. So, so the first thing to say is uh, it, it wasn't two PhDs, sorry. It was a, a dual PhD. So I did half in Australia, half in Japan. Um, but, but I did that very deliberately uh, because I, there were things that I own, only in, at the research institute in Tokyo could I learn. I couldn't get that type of access in Australia. And so I wanted to do a PhD across two different cultures and, and the labs were, were extremely different. Um, after the PhD, I, I really started thinking if I'm getting into leadership and I want to influence change at a global scale, is this very niche area of quantum computing the right place to do it? And, and I realized that it wasn't. And there were gaps in, in, in my own kind of skill set and expertise that I needed to, to fill to be more effective. And about the same time, there was this uh, globally emerging kind of buzz around data science. And, and data science is really, it's, it's kind of changed from what it was back then, but it's really mathematics and, and computer science. And people started to appreciate that if you could think mathematically about how to access and analyze and, and transform data, you could be very efficient and very effective um, in these kind of big industries. And we saw those transformations happen uh, in, in the 2000s and they're still kind of taking place today. And, and really the, the center of that was Silicon Valley. And so I moved there and had these different experiences that you talked about and they might sound kind of like a meandering path, but they were all really leveraging the fundamentals of, of mathematics, uh, thinking about systems, um, even from a scientific point of view, um, accepting that what I'm doing at the moment is probably wrong, but it's close to the truth. And how can we keep going in the right path to get closer and closer to the truth and get these approximations and then to build something that's actually useful. And that last part was the missing link in, in the research world. You don't have to build anything that's useful. You just have to uncover information and knowledge. And so that was kind of the aha moment for me when I discovered that we can build technology leveraging the new knowledge and and transform industries. Wow. Well, thank you, Seiji. Just if I can finish with one last question, uh, what advice would you give to a young person, whether they're at school, at uni or early career, that aspires to do things in in, in your field? Yeah, I would would say say a few things. I would say learn the fundamentals of whatever industry you want to get into. Too often we see people that are extremely good at what they do, but there's a disconnect between uh, some of the leadership or some of the decisions they're making and really the nuts and bolts of that industry. And it can only get people so far. And to really have people follow your vision and rally around what you're saying, you need to know what you're talking about. And so... It doesn't, it doesn't have to be a PhD or even a prolonged uh, duration of education at school in a specific area, but you need to understand 
how things work in that industry and where they don't work. And then I'd also say, uh, learn how to be wrong. Learn that very early. Learn how to be wrong often and still be effective. And so if you jump into a new industry or you change teams or somebody smarter than you joins your team and has a better perspective, recognize that and learn how to work with that person, adopt a new way of thinking and make progress. That, I can't stress that enough. You, you will be wrong often. So the earlier you kind of learn how to navigate that, the more effective you'll be. Thank you for listening to this episode. For more on global Australian game changes over the last decade, please go to our website, advance.org.